0: All right, I'm using something new to preach to you, so if this gives me a hard time, you'll know about it. I don't know how quick the screen turns off or not. Everything about the next 30 minutes is difficult for you, distractions, pressures in your life, worrying about what you have to do this afternoon, worried about what you brought in. I want you to see if you can just focus in to hear the word of the Lord to you through the preaching of the word and to just put those things aside and say, Lord, through your word, would you speak clearly to me? God is speaking all week long to us. In this time, it's a, a special time where the family or the flock of God comes together and an under-shepherd to Jesus, a sinner, uh, but one who has been called to serve you in this way, gets to speak to you. You're not really trying to hear my words, you're trying to hear the words of the Spirit, and I'm trying to help you to hear those. So you're not passive, you're listening. And we're asking the Spirit to work in our souls. Uh, we're in the book of Hebrews. We're calling the sermon series Jesus Seriously. Jesus, seriously. Today is just a hundred proof gospel. Do you know what I mean by that? Just like coming straight at you with gospel. So I want you to be ready to receive it and to taste it for all of its glory. All right, here's one of the things that we like to say is true about the soul of Seven Mile Road. We are all in on the person and the work and the teachings of Jesus, who he is, what he has done, and how he calls us to live. That is a three-corded rope that makes us strong. We want all of who Christ is shaping all of who we are all the way down. Give me everything that's true about who Jesus is and what he's done and what he teaches. The world that you live in, Bostonian culture, decidedly secular, narcissistic, materialistic, post-Christian, we want nothing to do with the person of Jesus. Let's get rid of that. We want nothing to do with the work of Jesus. Let's get rid of that. And we want a very carefully edited presentation of the teachings of Jesus. Uh, This week, a friend of mine that I worked with at my day job for the last 15 years was leaving. And I thought, man, that was a long time. She was a great uh, partner of mine. So let me sit with her and just thank her and affirm her. And I also wanted to ask her how her soul was doing leaving a job that she's been in for 15 years and moving to something totally different. So we did that Of course, she knows I'm a pastor, which is just weird to people, and so we got to talking about the gospel, and here's the two things that she said to me. She said, number one, the world is so crazy, and I do believe that the teachings of Jesus help people be better people, so I'm good with the teachings of Jesus, and then she said, but I'm way too busy to go any deeper into it than that, okay, everyone feel that? I'm good with the teachings of Jesus. Now, we probably know she didn't mean all of the teachings of Jesus. If I would have gotten, open my Bible and said, here's what Jesus taught about money. <laughs> here's what Jesus taught about sexuality. Here's what Jesus taught about our future. She might say, oh, no, not those teachings of Jesus. You know, the, the good teachings of Jesus. But what she was saying was, I want to separate the person and the work of Jesus from the teachings of Jesus. Does everyone feel that? We're not allowed to do that. The teachings of Jesus are inexorably linked to the person and the work of Jesus. If he is not who he taught he was, if he did not accomplish what he taught he was here to accomplish, then all the rest of his teachings just unravel. And so, as a church, we're saying, Before we get to the teachings of Jesus, let's be anchored in the person and the work of Jesus. That's this year together, deep dive into the book of Hebrews, which unpacks for us magnificently the person and the work of Jesus. Okay, so that's what we're doing together. One of those works of Jesus is so weird. One of the works of Jesus was dying, dying. I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this, because if you've been around church or gospel, there's all these weird things that you have grown accustomed to. But take a step back with me and think about this. Is it not odd that the symbol of Christian faith is a cross, which is a symbol of what? Of death. And not just death, but awful, gruesome, execution-style shameful death. This is weird. If you ran into a community of people who wore guillotines around their neck or gas chambers or cyanide needles or um, mini electric chairs, that was their thing. Wouldn't that at least give you pause and say, whoa, what's with the symbol of death as the symbol of your movement? It's weird. And yet Christians across history and across the planet right now today wear crosses and tattoo crosses. And we build our churches and what do we put at the top, the high point of our churches? Crosses. And we have crosses on mugs and we screen paint t-shirts with crosses and we do our church logos with crosses. Why do we do this? It's because at the heart of of the gospel is the death of Jesus in our place for our sins. If you were to go home this afternoon and do nothing but just read through one of the gospels or read through the whole New Testament, you would come across the strangest thing. The dying of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, is not treated like some unfortunate event Like some unexpected turn in the story, it is presented as this work of Jesus that had to happen. Toward the end of his ministry, Jesus began to say these things to his disciples. Okay, I'm going to Jerusalem, I am going to suffer at the hands of the Pharisees and the scribes, and then I am going to be killed. What was their natural reaction to this statement by Jesus? Well, then don't go. What are you talking about? You're at the height of your ministry. You're famous. Everybody loves you. Why would you go to Jerusalem if you think you're going to be killed? All right, who performed at the TD Garden last night? Only the teenagers in the room smiled at me? Nobody knows? Wow. You've got to start following some different people on Twitter, people. Okay, Bruno Mars performed at the TD Garden last night, and tonight, if you want to spend $350 and get a ticket behind the stage, you too can see Bruno Mars. If two weeks ago, Bruno Mars said to his crew, hey, listen, we're going to Boston, and here's what's going to go down. I'm going to get booed, stuff's going to be thrown at my head, and then I'm going to be killed while performing on stage. What would Bruno Mars' fans and supporters say to him? Well, you're not going to Boston then, right? Why would you ever walk into your death? Don't go. But Jesus said, I have to. In the story of the seven mile road, Jesus is unpacking gospel for two disciples. And what does he say to them? He says, don't you know that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and die? When Paul gets up and preaches a sermon in Thessalonica, he is reasoning and arguing with them, and he presents to them the fact that it was, here we go, necessary for the Christ to suffer and die. I could give you 100 more verses on that. The point is this. The road to your salvation necessarily went through the cross, through the grave. Okay, if you're a Boston person, you know there's about 16 different ways to get into the city, right? How many people know that? You can go down 99, no toll, uh, 93, no toll, by the way. You can go down 99 through Everett, also no toll. You can go over the Tobin Bridge if you want to pay the toll. You can go through the Sumner Tunnel. You can go through the Williams Tunnel. And I don't know if you know this or not, but you can go through Malden down by the Fellsway into Somerville and sneak around through Cambridge into the city. There's a dozen different ways to get into Boston. True? What about Nahant? I'd be terrified to live in Nahant. You? I'm always impressed by the boldness of those people. There is one street that you can drive a car into Nahant. That is it. At least Winthrop has two. Nahant, just one. You feel that? The Bible says to you, this was the means of your salvation. There was no other way. Someone had to die, only way. No shortcuts, no secret passages, death. All right, you should be in your mind going, why? Why would that be required? So let's do some theological work before we get into the words that we just read together. At the end of his letter to the totally jacked up church that was in the city of Corinth, um, a mess, like all churches are. This one was bad. One of the things that the people were saying in this church, if you can believe it or not, were, oh, there's no resurrection of the dead. There's no resurrection of the dead. This church was so proud that they were denying one of the core tenets of the apostolic witness. There is no resurrection of the dead. In love, to combat that heresy and that hubris, Paul writes to them about the resurrection of Jesus at the end of his letter. And in it, he has this one sentence Here's the first half of that sentence. He says this. In Adam, all die. In Adam, all die. There's like a thousand sermons built into those four words. Here's the basics. In the beginning, God, our creator, chose to deal with our race through a representative. That's how he chose to do this. You and I, and every other human being that ever has or will live was tied to, locked down with, in bed with whatever happened to Adam. The technical term for this truth is federal headship. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before. It's a theology term. Federal comes from the Latin word feodis, which means a compact or a contract or a covenant or to be in league with okay uh you know what's that geek conference the cartoon conference the superheroes wow you don't know about bruno mars but you all know about the comic con (laughs) jesus why do you have me pastoring these people okay (laughs) you all know about the comic con i see you know what the justice league is right how many people in the justice league a bunch of people including the people with their super rings, okay? They are in league together. That's this word federal. It means to be in league with. And in league with who? With a head, with a forerunner, with a pioneer, with a trailblazer. Federal headship means that God saw to it that you would be in league with a head, and this head was Adam. Okay. As Bostonians, we don't like this at all. We don't like it at all. I've I've decided that there's two reasons why this doctrine is not welcome in the city of Boston or in our culture. One is it implies authority, and no one in this Bostonian culture does authority. The authority of God the Father, we want to throw it off, and so we will not have any father. Not God, not our own dad's, And certainly not Adam. But the other reason we dislike this doctrine is because not just authority, but solidarity. We don't do solidarity in American Bostonian culture. Solidarity means I'm connected to the performance of someone else. We want to be on our own, autonomous, free agents. I'm not connected to anybody. Lone wolf, that's how Americans do it. This is why marriage is on the outs in our culture and all the solidarity around marriage is on the outs in our culture. I've talked with folks who are married and still don't share bank accounts. That's just a silly one, but what are they saying? No, no, no solidarity. You got your account and I got mine. This is why people don't do church membership anymore. Um, we have some folks who are stepping into the membership in the life of the church. It's the most beautiful thing ever. But if you were a spy on my shoulders, a lot of times when I talk with someone about church membership, they look at me like I had just, like I say, hey, let's get together and talk about giving yourself fully to the life and the mission of a church as a member in solidarity with the rest of us. They look at me like I just said, hey, I want to come over. I'm going to pull out all 10 of your fingernails one by one while we're watching the Britney Spears years of the (laughs) Mickey Mouse Club, this is what they look at me like, like I was asking some just horrible thing. Why? We don't want to bind ourselves to anyone else. We are Americans. We are free. We don't do solidarity. Everyone feel that? But this is how God worked. Adam stood in for all of us. The problem is that Adam didn't stand, Adam fell. That's kind of the word that we use, but it's such a soft word. Adam took all of us and drove us off of a cliff a thousand miles an hour. That's what he did. Adam sinned, and we sinned with him. And the wages of sin is death, and so Paul says, in Adam all die." going to talk about this later. I would love to do that. There's objections that come up in our heart about this. You are a sinner by nature, also by choice, but by nature. And so in Adam, all die. That's the one rule in life that there are no exceptions to. I'm not going to wrap this for you, but Shai Lin in his album, The Atonement, says these words, and they sum this part up perfectly. We're cursed from our birth. Sinning from the beginning, the womb to the tomb, depraved to the grave, astray every day, every breath brings death, and Adam all die, and Adam all die. You feel that? Then Paul explodes in the second half of his sentence with these words, but in Christ all will be made alive. I need you to feel this if the words from Hebrews are going to be helpful to you this morning. The remedy for your doom, the remedy for my doom was not for God to change his mind about this idea of having one man represent all of us. The remedy was to run it back a second time with a second Adam. That was the remedy. With another head, another pioneer, another forerunner that we could be in league with. That was God's plan of redemption. Now the wicked sharp edge to this is for that new pioneer to trailblaze a way of salvation for us, he wasn't dealing with a clean slate like Adam was. He needed not only to live the perfect life, but he needed to die the death that Adam and all of us deserved. He needed to die if we were going to be restored to the glory and the honor that the Lord intended for us. And that means four things, and this is what we're going to see in the text. Number one, a new pioneer needed to live a perfect life. A new pioneer needed to die, needed to die an atoning death. A new pioneer needed to overcome or defeat death by rising from the dead. And then that new pioneer needed to willingly invite us into league with him. Does everybody feel this? In love, this is exactly what Jesus has done. All right, now we're going to go to the words of Scripture, and they should explode off the page to you with that frame. All right, here we go. This is some of what Katie had read. It has been testified somewhere. Okay, when you read that in your Bible, in the book of Hebrews, it doesn't mean that he just had a brain cramp and he forgot which chapter and verse it was, you know? He didn't have a Bible that had chapters and verses, so he's saying it's been testified somewhere in our Bible. It's been testified somewhere, and here he's quoting what we have as Psalm number eight. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection to his feet. Okay, Psalm eight is communicating to us The original glory that Adam and Eve were created for, that you and I were created for. However, briefly, all the universe was in subjection to Adam. If you go back and read Genesis 2, you will see that the animals were in perfect subjection to him. They came to him to be named and he exercised authority over them in his naming. You see that nature was in perfect subjection to him. He worked and he kept the garden, but it would just automatically grow the most giant, beautiful fruits, and it was in partnership with him, submitting to his work. His marriage was happy. Can you imagine that? A perfectly happy partnership between husband and wife. They knew no shame, no dissonance. And death was not even a thought. This is what God did with this race. He put us in dominion with glory and honor to be his stewards of creation. Do you feel that glory and that honor that was ours? The next verse says this. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Okay, you're supposed to laugh at this verse because it's one of those understatements in your Bible. That is an understatement there. We were created for this, and at present, we don't yet see it all there. Now, I know we think very highly of ourselves, right? We invented suspension bridges and satellites and iPhones and vacuum cleaners. Whoa, we are awesome. Take 10 minutes this afternoon and scroll down your Twitter news feed, and you will see We're not awesome. The world is not in subjection to us. No more dominion over animals, right? I mean, we have some pets that we have domesticated, but how many horror stories do we see of man and animal at each other? No more dominion over nature. Nature is not cooperating with us anymore. Relationships as broken as can be, Vegas, etc., 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 there is no more dominion. There's no more glory and honor in being us. We're a mess. We don't even have dominion over our own bodies. I play ball at the Y at 6 o'clock on Friday morning. It's supposed to be perfect for me. Everyone's over like 35. No one can jump anymore. It's supposed to be good. I went the other day. I went early. I ran a mile on the treadmill. I stretched out everything. I stretched out my eyelids like this just to make sure I didn't pull anything. Third trip down the court, boom, my hamstring just tightens up like a rock. I'm sitting on the sideline watching this game playing say, I don't even have dominion over my hamstring. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. What happened here? What happened to Psalm 8? Adam happened. Because of our sin in Adam, we are crippled in our ability to exercise dominion. All right. Now here's where the gospel explodes in this verse. Let's hear it together. He says this first. But we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. All right, if this was a track or a gospel community, I would say to you, what do you see in these words? So what do we see? Somebody's got the glory and the honor that the human race was originally made for, but who was it? It's Jesus. He's the one who has attained to the original Psalm 8 intentions of God for mankind. And how did he get to that place? Cross. He had to go through death. And was he going through that death just for himself? That he might taste death for everyone. Taste means to experience something fully. Have you ever had somebody say, you got to taste this drink? Don't, Don't just take a sip, take a real big swig of it. I want you to feel this. When you do that, you are experiencing everything that comes along with that drink, right? This is what Jesus came to do, to restore glory and honor to sinners by experiencing death in our place everybody feel the overtones of the frame that we set okay then he says these words it for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering okay. same thing do you feel these words what is the heart of God the Father for you that he would bring you back to glory? Bringing many fallen sons and daughters back to glory. That's the heart of God for you. That's his desire in the gospel. And how did he do it? He did it by bringing a new founder, pioneer, trailblazer, champion. I've been running all these words through my head to get ready to talk to you. Someone Who would go first? Have you ever heard that language before? Who's going to go first? We needed someone to trailblaze for us to glory. The early years of my life were in Staten Island, New York. That's why every now and then you're like, is that a Boston accent? Is that a New York accent? Is this kid from Australia? What is going on? Because I don't understand what he's saying. In our home, we lived on St. John's Avenue, and then there was Westerly Road, and the sewer ran across from St. John's to the other side of Westerly Road. When we were little, like four, five, six years old, you know, kids explore the entire neighborhood. Well, we got down there, and we spent like an hour peering through this sewer thinking about, can anybody go through this? Is there a monster down there? What'll happen? Who's going to go? Who's going to go? Is anybody going to go? I was not a super brave child, so I didn't go. I don't remember the kid's name, but there's one kid who said, I'm going to do it. He was like our superhero. He walked through a sewer in New York City underneath the road. I remember the long, it felt like an hour and a half. You know, it was probably 25 seconds. And then on the other side of Westerly, I see his head pop up over there. You feel that? He went first. What happened immediately after that? Every single little kid on the block was flying through that sewer. Why? Someone had gone before us and made a way for us to go. A few weeks ago, Olivia came and hung out after church with Callie. They're both nine years old. And so I took them up in the woods behind our house. And we're having the best time until we came to the massive giant thorn bush that blocks the entire way the rest of the path. What did my little Callie do as soon as we came up to the thorn bush? Who was she looking for at that point? Yeah, you know, they wanted to go do their own thing by themselves, right? We're nine years old. Who was she looking for when it had to get through the thorn bush? She was looking for father, for dad. And so what did I do for Callie and Olivia? I went in and I stepped on those thorns and I brushed it all aside and I cleared a path and I went through and then I turned and said, come on. You can come. Everybody, feel that? It was fitting that our champion, our pioneer, our trailblazer would go first. And that is what Jesus did. When it says that make him perfect, to perfect him, it doesn't mean that Jesus was lacking in moral quality, it means he hadn't been tested yet, he hadn't actually walked in our shoes and our flesh. He hadn't actually died yet. Someone had to go through that ordeal to be perfected, qualified, is how I want you to hear that. Jesus became qualified to be our forerunner by going first. Is that good news? Absolutely. One of us is qualified to lead the rest of us. How many people fly a lot? Anybody? have a job where you fly a bunch. I got some issues with flying because I've been on two different flights that nearly went down. Two of them. I'll, I'll tell you the story later. So when I get on planes now, I'm a little bit nervous. So one of the things that I do is I always look in that cockpit to just lay my eyes on whoever's flying this plane, just so that I feel decent about this, right? When I look in there, If I see bloodshot red eyes, or if the pilot's all frazzled, or if there's no one in there and we don't know who the pilot is, I get a little bit nervous, right? If I'm getting on this plane, and it's going to get me where I'm going, I need to know who's the captain. I love it when they get on the loudspeaker and say, hey, this is Captain whoever, I've been flying with JetBlue for 14 years. Does that feel good? That feels good. I'm not sure what I'm going to do if I get on and the guy goes, hey, this is Captain Billy. I've never flown before, ever. This is the first (laughs) time. But I think this is going to be all right. There's just a little turbulence ahead. You know all those buttons over there? I'm going to start pushing all those buttons. Oxygen masks. Does anybody want to fly on a plane with a captain who is not qualified? The good news of the gospel is We are in league with a founder, a pioneer, who has been perfectly qualified to save us. You feel that? All right, next verse. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Same thing, I would ask you again, do you feel it in here? Jesus had to be fitted with a body. Why? He had to become mortal because he had to die. It was fitting that the way that you have flesh and blood that will die that he did as well. He literally came to take on flesh and to go through death. Have you heard that three times today? Through death. And in passing through death, on his way to resurrection, he was defeating the one who had the power over death. That is the devil. What this means is the reason that we're terrified of dying, the reason that dying is a huge deal is because of our sin. And the devil's primary title in Scripture is accuser accusatory is what he does. And if we were to die with our sin still on our account, then we are in massive doom before a holy God and the devil is pictured as the one who will come and point to that sin and say the wages of that sin must be eternal death. But Jesus, in passing through death and coming out on the other side, has taken all the accusatory power away from the enemy, that we who are afraid of death, not so much the dying, but the judgment that comes with the dying, now have nothing to fear. Christ is on the other side. He has pioneered a way of salvation. He stands with victory. If we are with him, we are all good. If we are with him, we are all good. And that begs the final question of this. Are we with him? Are we with him? I hope you feel now why we don't want to get rid of the doctrine of federal headship, but we want to embrace it for all that it has for us. Because Jesus did not only die and rise for himself, but he died and he rose for you. In other words, the best news ever is that we have solidarity no longer with Adam, but with Jesus By faith. And the last thing I need you to see is the heart of Jesus to be in league with you. Alright, feel this with me. This is the rest of this text. He who sanctifies, Jesus, and those who are sanctified, you and me, have one source. We are all becoming children of God the Father, part of a family together. That is why he is not ashamed to call them Brothers. I mean, you could take the rest of the day and do nothing but memorize and meditate on that verse of scripture. This pioneer, this forerunner is not ashamed. Sorry. Is not ashamed to call you brothers. What's that mean? To be in solidarity with you, to bind himself to you. This is unbelievable. My little brother played college basketball. We overlapped for one year. So I was a senior, he was a sophomore. I played intramurals, which means not really good enough to play real. He was on like the legit real division one team. I mean, beat Arkansas, beat Oklahoma State like serious basketball. I walked around, cam- I'm 6'3". I walked around campus like I was 6'11 that year. <laughs> in every room, my chest walked in first like that. Because everyone was asking me all year long, Hey, is James your brother? Hey, is James your brother? Hey, is James your brother? What was my immediate answer? Can I say hell yeah from a church pulpit? Okay. That was my answer. Yeah, that's my brother. That's my brother. You feel that? Not ashamed. Okay, flip that. How many people know families where there is someone who has sinned so terribly and brought such dishonor to the family that they want to be as separated as far as possible from that person because of their sin against the family. Have you felt that before? Which should it be with us and Jesus? That should be it. Jesus Jesus should want to stay a 100 million miles away from me, from you. But the Unbelievable grace of the gospel says that is not the heart of Jesus towards sinners. This does not say Jesus blazed away and chose like seven or eight people who were super qualified. It says Jesus blazed away and he is not ashamed to say, not just me, but my brothers and my sisters as well. It's unbelievable. And then he goes and he defends that from the gospel, from the older covenant in three ways in the text. Here's how we see this. Jesus says this. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the middle of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Does everyone feel the solidarity in here? Does Jesus stand on the outskirts far away from sinners? Where does he plant himself? As their pioneer, right in the middle of all of us and says, I'm with them. They're with me. We're in league together. Or from Isaiah, I will put my trust in him. This is a quote from Isaiah saying, I stand with everyone and I'm trusting God to be good to his people. Jesus says, me too, I'm in league with them. And then lastly, behold, I am the children God has given me. Isn't it unbelievable that this verse doesn't stop right there? That Jesus goes, hey, I lived a perfect life and I died a death that was undeserved and I was given glory and honor, full stop. That's not where the gospel stops. The heart of Jesus for you is to say, me first and all the children that God has given me. This is why we adore this doctrine of solidarity with Christ. All right, let's land the plane here and I'll use the word stand to drive this home to you. In other words, what we just learned together was Jesus stood in for us, and Jesus is willing to stand with us. The biggest question for all 5 billion people living on this planet right now is this, do we stand with Jesus? Just think on that this morning. Am I in league with Christ? Am I represented by Christ? Has Christ become my captain? has Jesus led the way and now told me, take up my cross and follow him to glory. It is either Adam or it is Christ. There is no other option. You are either in league with Adam and in Adam all die, or you are in league with Christ and the promise of the gospel is that in Christ all will be made alive. Let's pray together. Father, we close our mouths and we submit to your wisdom that you would work through a rep, through a head, and the whole race would be in league with him. We confess that what we deserve is to be in league with Adam. We've sinned just as badly as he did. But in your grace, you have trailblazed a path of salvation where we can be in league with Jesus who is perfected through suffering who is willing to stand with us and so we set our hearts to say yes to this call to be the children of God the brothers of Christ Jesus thank you for your life, your death, your resurrection and your willingness to share it with us Whatever that means, we're in. Whatever that means, we want to stand with you. I pray that you would set us free from the fear of death, that we would be the boldest people in this city because Christ has come and Christ has died and Christ has risen and we're in Christ. Thanks for the grace of the gospel. We rejoice in it together today. Amen.